Good morning, church. Uh, I will be reading from Psalms 52. For the choir director, a psalm of David, regarding the time Doeg the Edomite said to Saul, David has gone to see Ahimelech. Why do you boast about your crimes, great warrior? Don't you realize God's justice continues forever? All day long you plot destruction. Your tongue cuts like a sharp razor. You're an expert at telling lies. You love evil more than good and lies more than truth. You love to destroy others with your words, you liar. But God will strike you down once for all. He will pull you from your home and uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous will see it and will be amazed. They will laugh and say, look what happens to mighty warriors who do not trust in God. They trust their wealth instead and grow more and more bold in their wickedness. But I am like an olive tree, thriving in the house of God. I will always trust in God's unfailing love. I will praise you forever, O God, for what you have done. I will trust in your good name, in the presence of your faithful people. Good morning, everybody. So, can we just skip the angry psalms? Wouldn't that be nice? Have you ever been at like a prayer meeting or something, and you open up a scripture, and it has this wonderful passage, and then all of a sudden it takes this turn, and you're almost like, should I stop reading now? I remember doing this at a college ministry event that we were putting on with a lot of students, and we were reading from Psalm 139, which is a lot of people's favorite passage. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. But the further you read in that song, then you come, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? I hate them with a full hatred. And your voice kind of trails off on that part, and you skip a few verses. It's a difficult thing in the Psalter to span all the emotions that are presented there. In fact, It's not just us that feel like it might be better to just skip some of these psalms. C.S. Lewis begins his essay on these kinds of psalms that way. Why don't we just skip these? You know, we're, we're enlightened, modern people. We don't live in a world of violence and vindictiveness like these people did thousands of years ago. We we don't express our anger like this anymore, except when we're on Twitter. We know better than these people do. That's maybe the approach that we come to, or this is really uncomfortable to sit through this kind of anger in the Word of God. But let me tell you where C.S. Lewis arrives at the end of that essay. We can't skip the angry Psalms because they're too real. They're too real. And in fact, there's so much insight in that conclusion about how we should read our Bibles. Because if you come to the Bible thinking that everybody in there is all buttoned up and straight-laced and they've got it all together and they're hovering about six inches off the ground because they're Bible characters, <laughs> you need to spend more time in the Bible because these people are broken, they are angry, they are fearful, they are dealing with shame. In fact, they're pretty similar to the people that you and I know, pretty similar to us. And I was reading an article a couple of months ago preparing to spend some time in the Psalms And this guy who's a biblical counselor said, you can sum up pretty much 
all the problems we face in life in about five areas. Fear, anger, guilt and shame, sorrow, and temptation. And it struck me that these are the principal areas that the Psalms help us to deal with. In fact, if you spend much time in the Psalms, you, you could cross off those five things on every page almost, and what the Psalms are doing is they're showing us the reality of the human condition, the reality of our experience in the world, and ways to take that experience and engage it and turn it and fill it with the Lord. In fact, that's what I want you to think about as we go into the Psalms is these Psalms are like a mirror for us to engage what's going on in our hearts, and they are redeemed pathways, patterns, grooves for us to put our hearts in and see how anger can turn in this psalm into worship, how fear last week in Psalm 91 can turn into trust, how guilt and shame next week can turn into forgiveness and confidence, how temptation can turn into faithfulness. This is what the Psalms do for us. They're, they're like God-inspired muscle memory for the people of God in their emotions. Now, why are we even talking about emotions in church? Because our, our culture has some interesting ways of dealing with emotions. We talked a little bit about this last week. There's kind of the all-in on emotions. It's the truest thing about you. How could you possibly question what arises so naturally and cleanly from within your heart? That's the indulge your emotions kind of approach. And then on the flip side, there's the ignore and pat down and pretend like your emotions don't exist approach, the kind of stoicism approach of the only thing in the church that's welcome are happy, flat emotions. But nothing could be further from the biblical truth. And in fact, I would wonder if so many of us have a hard time living our Christian faith in our day-to-day -day life because we neglect the biblical pattern for engaging our emotions. If you're anything like me, and, and I figure you probably are because I work at a church and this is still true for me, going from your quiet time in the morning into your day can be a rough entry. It's like everything was so perfect and wonderful this morning while I was praying and reading my Bible. And how did things get so out of hand? I haven't even had lunch yet. And then you start to have these thoughts of guilt and self-doubt. I must not be a very good Christian. Well, well, part of it is because we've disconnected our quiet time, our time with the Lord, from the real rough and tumble of emotional life as a Christian. And so what I, what I want to do in these psalms is I really want us to be seven-day-a-week, 24-hour-a-day Christians. I want us to be able to live as Christians in the real world where things like fear and anger and guilt and sorrow are everywhere and know what to do with these things. So last week we talked about fear. That wasn't as relatable for me as this week, anger. This is highly relatable for me, and chances are on five of these, you may hit two or three that you're like, man, that is where I really need help. Fear is like anger's troubled big brother, or anger, anger is like fear's troubled big brother. They're actually two sides of the exact same coin. Last week, we talked about fear is what happens when something you love is threatened, but anger is actually the opposite response to the same phenomenon, whereas Fear sometimes can be internalizing and retreating. Anger is a judgment on what is going on. In fact, sometimes in, in the counseling literature, anger is called the moral emotion. Because in order to be angry about something, you have to see something and say, that's not right. In fact, anger almost always comes from seeing something 
that is worth caring about and noticing that something is wrong. David Pallison defines anger, active displeasure towards something that's important enough to care about. See, here's the issue. Some people are angry all the time because, as we'll talk about, they they have this phenomenon and it's very quick in their heart to say, that's wrong, that matters, that's something that I care about, and it isn't right. Some people don't struggle with anger because they're really holy. Most people don't struggle with anger because they don't care enough. You don't care enough to get angry about things. Because I hate to tell you this, do you know who the most angry character in the Bible is? God. God is the angriest character in the Bible. Wrath in the KGV is anger in our parlance. God is angry in the Bible because he cares. Because things that he loved are not being loved and appreciated the way that they should be. Because people that he loves are rebelling against him. God is angry in the Bible. And so just like with fear, I don't want us for a moment to think all anger is bad and should be gotten rid of. What what really needs to happen is, just like there is a good fear in the Bible, there is a good anger in the Bible. Anger that looks at things that really matter to God, things that are right and wrong as as told in in the Word of God, that are being violated or sinned against or taken advantage of, should spark our anger. In fact, some of us in here, the message today shouldn't be how to deal with your anger. It's you should be angrier about some things that are going on because it mirrors the heart of God to love and care for the things that he has made. So if that's true, and what we see in the Bible is pictures of this over and over again, there's really two phases when we talk about anger. Is what we're angry about a worthy thing to inspire our anger? And secondly, if we've identified that we have a good anger, what's the reaction? So it's possible to have good anger and a bad reaction. It's possible to have good anger and a good reaction. That's what we, that's what we really want. That's what Jesus did. If you notice in the Gospels, Jesus is angry several times in the Gospels. But it's never at the moments that you really think Jesus should be angry. Because it's never in the moments where Jesus is personally offended or disrespected. It's never the moments where somebody looks at what Jesus does and turns away from it altogether. It's when people keep little children from coming to Jesus, he gets angry. It's when death and sorrow are overwhelming people that he loves, he gets angry. It's when the court of the temple, his father's house, is being used to profit off of people unjustly that Jesus gets angry. There's never a moment in the Gospels where Jesus gets angry on his own behalf, like his honor is being offended. It's always on behalf of his father who's in heaven. It's always on behalf of the people who are vulnerable and loved. So Jesus models for us a good anger and a good response. But then there's the flip side. There's bad anger and a bad response, which we could probably all tell stories from our life about that. And then what I think is probably the most pertinent for us is there's bad anger but a good response. That's what we see in the Psalms most often is what starts out being anger that's then sorted through and it's responded to in a godly 
Christ-like way. David Pallison, which I just quoted his definition of anger, wrote a book called Good and Angry, talking about what it's like to have a healthy anger. What it, and and what, he, what he reminds us of is that we're actually not here to try to solve anger. We're not here to try to solve everybody's anger issues. We're here to engage our anger. And that's what you're going to see in the psalm today. So the background to this psalm is kind of obscure. If you look at the, the uh, superscription over the psalm, that's in most Bibles, it's kind of set apart. It's a, it's a description of either the music that the psalm goes to or something that the choir master needs to know. But sometimes, like in our psalm today, we get a little background information about what's happening in this psalm. And it says, To the choir master, a mascal of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. So this story is, is not one that I've ever heard preached before. I've, I, in fact, it's, I had to go back and say, who is, who is this guy when I read this? It's, it's a story in 1 Samuel chapter 21 when David is a young man and he's on the run from Saul. And if you remember, David has been anointed king. He has slain Goliath. He is the up-and-coming general in Saul's army. And Saul turns on David and begins to try to kill him because Saul is a jealous insecure, domineering leader. And so David is trying to do God's will, but also trying to stay alive from Saul. In fact, one time Saul throws his spear at him in his uh, king's chamber room. He is hunting him. David is hiding out in caves. And at this moment, David decides to go to a town called Nob. Now, before Solomon, there's no temple in Israel. And really, before David's kingship, the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle have not been brought to Jerusalem. So what you had was, you had these priests who were Levites, who had descended from Aaron and from Levi, and they were serving as priests, but they didn't have a temple to serve in. So what they would do is they would set up these little miniature sanctuaries. There's, the most important one was at Shiloh, for example, but there's one at Nob, and this priestly family whose patriarch is Ahimelech, is serving God at Nob. David decides to go here because he knows that where the priests are, there's going to be provisions. Because if the people are making sacrifices, there's going to be bread, and there's going to be meat, and there's going to be water, and there's going to be supplies for him. He also happens to know there's something really interesting about this place at Nob. It tells us in 1 Samuel 21 and 22, the sword of Goliath is at Nob. Kind of an interesting little artifact that they have here. David is retreating to a place of safety on the run from Saul. And when he gets there, he takes bread and supplies and Ahimelech, who is kind of an equivalent of a priest. He's a grandson of Eli, from, you know, from the book of 1 Samuel. And uh, he gives David the showbread. This is the bread that's been consecrated for uh, the priest to use. In fact, Jesus references this when the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, you know, your disciples are not supposed to be pulling wheat on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, yeah, but don't you remember when David ate the showbread? I mean, that's like way bigger deal. And God was fine with that. So this, that's this story. So David goes, he takes the supplies, he talks to Ahimelech, and then in 1 Samuel 21 it says, and, just by the way, Doeg the Edomite who was the chief herdsman of Saul, was there. 
Well, he comes back in the next chapter because Saul is holding court, and he has all of his advisors there, and he's like, man, I want to get David. I've got to find where he is, and I'm going to kill him. And Dog the Edomite is there. And he says, well, actually, just a few weeks ago, he was at Nob with Ahimelech, and he gave him food, and he, he provided for him, and he didn't tell the king that he was doing that. Now, Ahimelech's brother, it's a small world back here in the Bible as well, his brother is the priest for Saul. His name is Ahijah. And Ahijah is there. He's got to be feeling all kinds of emotions at this point. His brother's getting sold out. Saul flies into a rage and he says, bring the household of Ahimelech up to me and I'm going to pass judgment on them. So what happens is the household, 85 priestly family members come to Saul and Saul says, because you have protected my enemy, you will be put to death. And he commands his guards to kill this priestly family in front of his whole court and the guards refuse. The guards say, we're not, we're not going to strike the Lord's anointed priests. But you know who decides that they're willing to do this? Doeg the Edomite. He steps forward and he slaughters these families in front of Saul because of the offense committed against him. In fact, this story gets worse. Doeg actually gets exalted for this. He's rewarded for this kind of evil for betraying David, for furthering the king's plans, for striking out against God's anointed people, his, his priests, Doeg is promoted and given all kinds of great things, and his counsel is increased in the sight of Saul. And the background to this psalm is when David finds out what Doeg had done to the people that helped him, he writes this psalm. He writes this psalm. He says, why do you boast of evil, O oh mighty man. This is kind of an interesting Hebrew idiom here. It's, it, it's, it's more like what we would say, big boy. It's like a taunting kind of term. Why do you boast of your evil? The steadfast love of the Lord endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction. Like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good. And lying more than speaking what is right, you love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. This is, this is a mild Hebrew tongue lashing that David is. It doesn't come across as well in the poetry, but man, this is like spitting angry. But I want you to think and step back for a moment. Who is David saying this to? Not Doeg the Edomite. Not his men. Not Saul. Not any of the people around this he's saying to God. This is, the, this is the way that David speaks in his anger to God. And the first thing we've got to know about engaging our anger is no matter what you're angry about, no matter how you're talking about it, no matter how you're dealing with it, the first thing you have to do to engage any emotion is to take it before the Lord, to speak it before the Lord. Now, David is not angry at God at this point. He's angry at somebody else, but how many of us would feel comfortable saying this to God about another person? Most of us would, would put that inside and say it to somebody else instead of God. But what David knows is there's actually no way of engaging your anger until you'll bring it honestly to God. He can handle it. He knows it. He can read your thoughts. You might as well just say it to him, and that's exactly what David does. He goes before God, he vents his anger to him, he begins to sort through it now, and, he, and he's trying to name and understand and identify what it is that has made him so 
angry about what Doeg has done. This has been incredibly helpful for me because when I got married, I realized I only knew about three emotional words, mad, bad, and sad. How are you feeling? Bad. How, how, how are you coping with that? I'm mad. What did that make you feel? Sad. That's it. That was the, I grew up with all boys. That was the extent of my emotional language, was those three. And what I've noticed in the Psalms is, for those of us who don't know exactly how to name what we're feeling, notice how specific David is. Notice that actually all over the Psalms, one of the things that it does is it gives us all these little diagnostic pieces to go into our heart and figure out what's going on in there. Do you feel like you're being cut by the words of other people? Well, go to Psalm 52. Do you feel like people around you love evil more than good? That's a window into your emotional life. Do you feel like darkness is your only friend? That's the theme of explaining the emotion of Psalm 88. Go there and see how it plays out for the person that feels that way. Do you feel totally dry when you think of God? Like he's not answering, there's nothing going on, you're spiritually at your wit's end. That's how Psalm 42 talks about feeling. Do you feel like God is asleep at the watch, like he's taking care of everybody else but not taking care of you? That's the opening line of Psalm 13. God, how long? Will I wait on you forever? What? When we go and take our anger or our sorrow or our grief to God, it helps to go in and find the language that suits what it is we're feeling because that's the way you hop into that groove to begin to follow what God is going to do through your anger or your fear or your guilt. See, the connection point for us is is these moments where we find somebody expressing exactly what we're feeling and then we follow the pattern of that road all the way to the end. So that's exactly what David does. He's talking with God. He's putting together how he feels. He's sorting through, and and he's trying to figure out and name exactly what he's feeling. One of the reasons this is so important is because a few weeks ago, we talked about the story of Joseph, and we talked about the power of forgiveness. And you actually can't forgive someone, and you really can't be forgiven until you can name what it is you did wrong. So if you go in with a very vague, this made me feel bad or upset, that's, that's not true forgiveness. True forgiveness has to name the sin that's going on. We have to be clear and honest and forthcoming about the offense between two people. But the second thing that David does is he doesn't just name it before God. He doesn't just leave it there. He then lets God begin to sort out what's going on in him emotionally. The second step, you want to identify your anger, but then you want to examine and evaluate what's going on in your heart. This is one of the things that's missing so often in kind of our pop understanding of anger management. Anger management, you know, like taking breaths and counting to 10 and all that kind of thing, that can be great, like acute care for anger. It can keep you from reacting poorly when you might otherwise. But it's actually a terrible way to get to the root of anger, because what that implicitly says about us is anger is something you really can't uh, control. It's something you really can't understand. If you can just keep it from ruining your life and somebody else's, that's really the best you can do. But when you only deal with the horizontal part of anger, you actually never allow God to transform you at the heart level. 
So what we want to do in Scripture is we actually don't just want to manage it. We want to understand it. We want to get to the root of it. We want to go before God and let him sort out everything that's going on in our hearts. And most of the time you do this, you can't do it in the moment, right? If you're really angry, you're not just going to all of a sudden put the brakes on and say, you know, what, what's at the base of this feeling? What's going on here? You know, that counselor speak you do with yourself. That's probably not going to happen, but a lot of times what you can do is come back when the Lord starts to prompt you and say, hey, what was that all about? Why did you speak that way? What were you trying to cover up? What, what were you trying to voice to that person? Why did you react so strongly? What was being threatened in you? And in those moments, God begins to rearrange your heart in such a way that your anger every time after that is actually slightly different than it was in that moment. I'll, I'll give you a small example of this. The other night, probably a week or so ago, in the evening, I was holding Lila, our new baby. I don't know where she is now, but she's in here. Um, I was holding her and um, giving Laura some time, and she was just, I mean, she was just screaming her head off. And everything I did, I'd walk around and do all the stuff. And, you know, I'm a taking care of baby certified dad, so I pride myself on being really good at this, and nothing was working. But, but what was interesting about this was it wasn't one of those like, oh, man, this is terrible. It was like the whole reservoir of anger began to bubble up. Like, what is wrong with this baby? And, you know, I'm kind of embarrassed to admit that, but it was immediate, it was powerful, and it was anger. So I did in that moment immediately step back and say, there's something going on here. I didn't want DHS to be called or anything like that. I just wanted to make sure that I headed that off at the pass. But it really got me thinking, why, when babies, basically, they do three things. Eat, poop, cry. I mean, that's like, that's it. Why would that bring about such a response from me? It's like the most predictable thing in the world. She's hungry. It's late. She's probably tired. Why am I reacting in anger to this? And I had the grace of God in that moment for him to come to me and say, well, yeah, what is going on with that? What, what is going on with that? I, well, I feel like she's kind of unappreciative. We provide all this stuff for her. I haven't heard a single thank you since we brought her home from the hospital. I feel like this is a little unwarranted, you know, given the circumstances to be screaming this loud. But then when I was really honest with myself, it wasn't about her. It was about me. I was working on this project, I was reading this book, I was watching this show, I was doing this thing, I am so inconvenienced right now, I am so fed up with having to do this right, and Laura should be doing this, I mean this shouldn't be me. Those kinds of ugly thoughts go through your head and they reveal, you know what the root of this is? Selfishness. Selfishness. That's like all of parenting is just to teach you that. You're selfish. You value your own interests over other people all day, every day. And it shows me that, you know, I had to just stop and say, you know what, this isn't one of those, man, I shouldn't have gotten angry. This is one of those, Lord, selfishness has really taken root in my heart right now. I think a lot better of myself than I should. I'm not valuing the gift of children the way I should. I need to be forgiven. I need to be forgiven for this. And standing there praying, it was like all these psalms come rushing into my head. I don't know if you guys know Psalm 127, where it talks about children are a heritage from the Lord. And God was just so kind in that moment to start supplying those things into my mind. 
And you know, at that point, the situation didn't actually change at all. It would have been this perfect miracle story. If in that moment, I prayed and asked for forgiveness, and she stopped crying and was the perfect angel and didn't spit out her pacifier, and it was wonderful. It didn't. The, the situation actually stayed the exact same. But I changed in that moment. I completely changed. I was forgiven by God. I was restored by him. I was thankful to him for giving us this child. I was thankful to get to be there in the evening with my child, holding her, even though she's screaming her head off. And the anger, when you let God sort through it, actually doesn't change your external circumstances most of the time. But it does change you. It changes you. And that's the whole point of what's going on in these psalms is God actually wants to change you at the heart level. Your anger a lot of times can be good and it's externally focused and there are real wrongs, but at the end of the day, God's going to deal with that. All you can do is deal with God yourself. The only thing you can do is go to God and see the areas in your heart that need to be transformed and the sins that need to be confessed and the grace that needs to be applied to you and begin to work through that with God. That's all you can do. David begins to do this in front of us in this psalm and he actually reveals to us one of the most powerful and important tactics to begin to let God sort through your heart. It's the key in this passage is here twice. It's in verse 5 and it's in verse 8. It's this little first word in both of these verses. But God will break you down forever. But I am like an olive tree. So the key to anger biblically is to replace maybe your four-letter words with a three-letter word. But. So... You're upset about this, maybe rightly upset, but what does God have to say about it? What's true about this situation? What we do when we let God sort through this is we reassert true reality into our perceived reality. This situation sure looks like this to me, God, and God's going to say, but have you thought about this? Yeah, it does look like the wicked are going to succeed in the short term. That's the summary of the first part of this. Yep, Doeg did it. It was horrible, he got away with it, and better than that, he actually got rewarded for it. That's the story. Nothing David can do about it, nothing's going to change. That is David's lived reality. Why do the wicked prosper? Why do people that hate God seem to do better than people who love God? That's all over the Psalms. But notice what, what it does here. But, but have you thought about what God says is going to happen in the end? Have you thought about the way that God actually rules the universe like a household, lovingly, caringly, justly. But do you remember that God will actually break down all of his enemies forever? Do you remember that those who rebel against God will be snatched and torn from their tents? They'll be uprooted from the land of the living? Do you not remember that the righteous are going to see and look on? They're going to fear God, but they're going to laugh at the trouble to come because they are so safe in the security of God. David begins to reassert what's really true. He begins to understand that his values and God's are actually aligned in this story. See, this, this is actually the good kind of anger. He's upset not just because of personal offense. He's upset because somebody who is rebelling against God is proud of it and is succeeding. His heart is aligned with God's because he allows God to have vengeance. See, all through the Bible, it's not that there won't be vengeance for wrongdoing. It's that when you put yourself through anger in the position to take vengeance, you're actually sitting in God's chair. See, 
All through the Bible, the vengeance that will be carried out in the end is as sure as the sun coming up and going down. But it will be God who does it. And it will be us who forgive and look on if we've trusted in Christ. So David's heart is aligned with God's. His values are aligned. And because of that, he knows how to act in his anger. In the last part of this, we see another but. I am a green olive tree in the house of God. Kind of a strange thing to say, I would admit. What does an olive tree have to do with anything that's going on in this psalm? Well, olives, olive trees, have several interesting qualities that David finds this metaphor to express. The first one is olive trees are some of the longest living trees on the planet. In fact, there are trees in the area on the Mount of Olives where the Garden of Gethsemane is that people guess have been there for almost a thousand years. In fact, it's kind of cool if you think about the age of these trees, then they came from pits of other trees that you only have to go back like three trees to get to the ones that were there when Jesus was there. These are long-lasting trees. And there's actually a contrast in this psalm between the short-lived triumph of evil and the long-lasting justice of God. See, at the beginning, Doeg is, oh, mighty man, big guy. But now it says, see that man? And here, this is kind of a diminutive in the Hebrew. You see that little guy who would not make God his refuge? Just give it enough time, David says. I'm like an olive tree. I'm not sprouting now, but I've got thousands of years ahead of me. If you wait long enough, you will see every injustice, every source of righteous anger dealt with perfectly and justly by God. I am waiting. I am here. I am planted. I am watching for what God will do. The the other thing is the olive tree and the olives are used in the temple later on. They're used in the sacrifices. They're used at the sanctuaries. They're used in worship. And it's funny to me that we think of David this way He has a heart that is after God's, but sometimes we don't know exactly what to say. What is that? What is a heart after God's? Well, you're seeing it right now, that in the midst of really terrible evil, in the the midst of personal offense, what is David's response? Essentially to worship, to worship. The end of this psalm is simply David pulling back from his anger and saying, the right response for me right now is to worship God. Look at the actions of this last stanza of this psalm. I am like a green olive tree. I am trusting in the Lord. I am thanking him forever. I am waiting for his name, for it is good. That you can be angry and worship at the same time. In fact, you probably should be when you're angry, worshiping at the same time. It's actually not really that surprising then in Galatians when you see the fruit of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit, that the fruit of the flesh is this long list and half of them come from the anger family. Acts of rage and fits of anger and lashing out at other people. And then on the flip side, you see the fruits of the Spirit like love and joy and peace and patience. And it struck me this week, you can actually do all of those things when you're angry. You can be patient when you're angry. In fact, you should. You you can be gentle when you're angry. And, And you should. You should be like David who isn't, his anger is not abetting, but it's understood and aligned with God's heart. And so he comes back to a point of worshiping God. 
The last thing for this olive tree is an olive tree is planted somewhere. In order to grow, you have to be planted. And it reminds me of the opening psalm. Psalm 1 is the way to read the entire Psalter. It's like there's two people. There's the person who is planted by streams of water, who yields fruit in its season and prospers in all their way. And then there's the wicked who are like chaff. But, but the problem is, early in the process, you can't tell the wheat from the chaff. It's just all sitting there together. Until the wind begins to blow and it's tossed up in the air and the heaviness of the wheat drops down and the chaff blows away never to be seen again. David understands that there's two ways to live. There's the wheat way to live. There's the tree that's planted by the stream that has roots in God. And there's the wicked way to live that's with all the righteous people at the beginning, looking successful, taking pride in itself, but in the end, it's not even worth remembering when the wind begins to blow. David resigns himself here to wait on the Lord. It's a case of good anger with a great response. He's let God sort him out. He's gotten to the heart of what it is that he cares about that's worth being angry about. And he's let the Spirit, the wind of God, blow through his soul and separate the things that are not honoring from God from the things that really do matter. And he's resigned himself to worship God. I was having coffee with a pastor from this area this week, and we're reading this little book called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. It's written by an early 19th century pastor named Thomas Chalmers. And I was reminded as we were going through this, his whole point in this book is it's actually impossible to just stop doing something. That's impossible. If you want to put sin out of your life, if you want to get to the bottom of anger, you can't just say, okay, we're not going to do that anymore. What you have to do is replace it with something better, something more powerful, something lovelier. And I I had forgotten, but I was reminded all over again of this great metaphor. In the intro to this book, they write, if you had all of scientific power and, and, and prowess at your disposal and somebody told you to try to get air out of a container... You could try a million different ways to push the air out, to vacuum seal it, to suck the air out, to do whatever you could, but, but you know the easiest way to get the air out of a container? Fill it with water. That's actually the easiest way. It's the best way. It's the only way to truly do that is to fill it with something else. And I thought, this is just perfect for what we see in David. He's filled with rage. It's righteous rage. Most of us often are filled with unrighteous rage. And in the end, you see that actually the air is completely taken out of this container because the water of the presence of God has pushed it all out. So I want to conclude this morning by leaving you with that picture, that what God wants to do in you is not come down on you when you get angry. It's not to tell you, hey, stop doing that. Stifle your emotions. What God wants to do is he wants to go to the very bottom of them and meet you there. And talk with you there and speak with you there and find a place of worship there and replace all the unrighteous, selfish, self-centered things that we are filled with, with himself. So don't resist your anger. Engage it. Don't indulge your anger. Engage it. Go to the bottom and meet with God and worship him there and watch him push everything unworthy out of your life so that we truly could be good and angry. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you deal with us 
as real people. That we don't have to come here and pretend, Lord, we don't have to come here and take parts of us and leave them at home. We can come as whole people. Even this morning, Lord, angry people. And so, Father, I pray now as we come to your table that you would deal with us, that you would sort out what's going on in our hearts, that you would get to the bottom of the reasons that the things that we care about are not the things that you care about. The places in our hearts, Lord, where we, through our own means, have so many times reacted in ways that are not honoring and they're damaging. Father, would you redeem those times in us this morning? Would you do something in our hearts that trusts you at a level where we can feel safe with you in our deepest anger? Father, I pray that you would meet with us this morning by your spirit. As we worship, as we come to your table, Lord, be present with us. Change our hearts. Lord, help us to live for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're taking communion this morning as we do each week. The way we do communion here at our church is uh, the servers are going to come forward and we're going to stand and come up to the table. The reason we do that is because when you see Jesus talking about communion in the New Testament, it's like this great banqueting feast that we're going to share with him. In fact, he tells parables about it. There's a great feast in heaven that people were invited to and the righteous come to it. There's a vision at the end that in Revelation, what we're going to do is we're going to join the wedding supper of the Lamb. We're going to feast with God forever. And what you're doing this morning is you're coming and you're looking forward to that moment. You're getting just a small taste to tide you over until we get there. In connection with our sermon this morning, what we're doing is we're coming and being filled with something of God as opposed to being filled by ourselves. So as you come this morning, we would just ask that you don't just come in this morbid kind of head down and eyes closed and confessional moment. You can confess your sins anytime, but this is a celebration of the life and death, resurrection and coming again of Jesus. If you need God to deal with your heart this morning, this is the time to do it. If you need to be prayed for, this is the time to do it. If you need to reach out to somebody, this is the time to do it. So as you stand, if you're a believer in Christ, we ask you, come to the table this morning. Come and partake of what God has given us to remember the Lord's death until he comes.